Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. I don't often give a preamble before I start a sermon, but this one's going to go deep. This one may go long, and you know if that's me saying it, that's saying something, right? I, I, don't groan, don't groan, because if you, I, I'm telling you, and I, I'm not saying, I'm saying this, and this may sound egotistical, and I don't intend it to be, if you check out, you're going to miss out. So buckle up, and what I'm about to say next totally fits with everything I just said. Tests. Tests. We all face them. Perhaps you perceive what I just said as a test. The challenge of being tested starts early in life. Within a few years of being formally schooled, as we all know, we find ourselves regularly examined to test our understanding of what we're being taught. And if we continue, look to continue into higher levels of learning, there are more tests to be taken. And even if we stop the formal education process, Tests must be taken in order to secure a job, to enter into a specific profession or vocation. Cutting hair, fixing cars, flying a plane, getting to work the cash register. It doesn't matter. First, there is a test to be taken. If you want to drive a car legally, then you first have to pass both a written and a road test in order to get a license. And these days, as we all know, Depending on where you want to go and what you want to do, in some situations, you need to show proof of a negative COVID test. Tests. We all face them. And today's message is about being tested and how testing can lead to temptation. More specifically, it's about who is being tested, tempted, and why. The one being tested today is Jesus. Jesus, who last week we witnessed embrace a baptism of repentance that he did not need in order to take the first step in a much longer journey of willingly bearing all the brokenness of our humanity and the inevitable consequence of death to which all sin leads. Jesus, who thereafter, as heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended, also was declared to be, by an audible voice from above, the beloved Son of God. And as we discovered last Sunday, in case you missed it, that moment is not just about who Jesus is. In fully identifying with us, what is declared about Jesus becomes a reflection of our true identity, who we really are. We are not strangers or even enemies with something to prove or earn for whom God settles or tolerates. We are all God's children Sons and daughters whom our Heavenly Father is pleased to love. And now, that identity for Jesus, and by extension for us, is about to be tried and tested and even tempted. Let's open up to Luke chapter 4. The words are also on the screen. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It reads, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. 
The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil then led him to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand at the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. Because it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, we've all heard this one before. It's one of those Bible stories that is known to those even outside of the faith. Jesus and the devil once had a showdown in the desert. Good versus evil. And the good guy, as always, wins. While the bad guy walks away, shaking his fist, swearing revenge, looking for the opportune next time. But there's a lot more to this this story than meets the eye. This isn't fiction. This is history. This is a moment in time. And yet, what happens here is more than just an isolated incident. The nature of this battle, this testing and temptation, goes all the way back to the beginning. Our origin as a species, as the children of God in a garden called Eden. That Luke has this in his rearview mirror is evidenced by his placement of the genealogy of Christ right before this episode at the end of chapter 3. A family tree linking Jesus all the way back to the first child of God named Adam. But this is more even than a throwback and a second chance in terms of humanity's original fall from grace. This scene also echoes a pivotal defining moment in Israel's exodus from centuries of slavery. It's not a coincidence that most of this encounter just happens to be where Israel's failures began, leaving a generation to wander in the wilderness. Listen carefully to everything said here, and you can't help but notice Jesus is following the script of Deuteronomy chapter 6 through 8. Words by which Israel, not just in the wilderness, but throughout her history, words in which Israel did not abide. Is Jesus the new perfect Adam, the representative of all humanity, as the Apostle Paul will later write in his letters? Is Jesus the new faithful Israel, the means of light and blessing to all the nations of the earth? That's what the devil aims to sabotage and invalidate through the temptations that follow. And what of this adversary, the leader of the opposition, this devil? Is this a fallen angel? Is this the personification of the forces of darkness within? 
Study the scriptures, and you'll notice there are various characterizations of the evil in this world. Manifestations both external and internal. But the point here is not to get hung up on the figure of the devil as much as it is to recognize there is, both in and among us, strong, defiant, violent opposition to the character and purposes of God. To love, health, wholeness, the peace of all creation. And that might cause us to wonder, can the power of evil eclipse the power of God? The Bible does not hold to a dualistic view of creation. The Bible does not hold to a view of good and evil separate and apart from each other, constantly going head to head, the balance between them fluctuating back and forth, the final outcome of their battle ever in doubt. The biblical understanding is our creator allows for the possibility of evil. The power of evil then operates not apart from, but within the sovereignty of God. The possibility of evil and wrongdoing is a byproduct of God giving humanity free will. Evil's power, evil's manifestation derive from humanity's choice to give evil authority in our lives. To act against the goodness of God is to choose evil and to give evil substance, tangibility in life. Now, God's permission for the possibility of evil does not mean, however, that our creator simply stands back and watches bad things happen. We worship a just God who ultimately holds all evil accountable. In the end, there will be a reckoning. Meanwhile, as our creator actively governs all creation and humanity makes real choices with real consequences, God works to bring good out of evil, to fulfill his purposes for us despite all that goes wrong. And the most powerful example of this reality is the work of the cross. In Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter, as he preaches, makes it clear the most evil act in history, the crucifixion of Jesus, was carried out by men with evil in their hearts. And yet, God in Christ willingly handed himself over to die for us all. Back to this story. Notice, the devil is not the instigator of this encounter. Luke emphasizes not once, but twice, it is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord, leading Jesus into the wilderness to be confronted by evil. In other words, this is not a surprise spiritual attack. This is not some sudden ambush on Jesus. This is a divinely orchestrated conflict, a necessary experience Jesus must walk through. Does that mean the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into temptation? No. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus to be tested. The temptations that follow are the work of the adversary, the devil. Confused? Let's break down the distinction between testing and temptation. In verse 2, the Greek word translated in some Bibles as tempted and in other Bibles as tested bears out what I'm talking about. The Greek verb that's used there to describe what Jesus endures 
can actually refer to testing in a positive sense as to reinforce or strengthen, but the word can also refer to being tempted in a negative sense so as to be weakened or eventually broken. In other words, there are two sides, different sides of the same coin. Biblically, a test is a situation God sends or allows in our life with the intention of building up and maturing our faith in him. Faith, you'll remember, is a gift from God. Faith is not something we manifest. This is something many people need to hear over and over again. Faith is a gift from God. Through grace, God gives us a measure of faith. And the Lord, of course, knows the power of that faith. We, on the other hand, need to learn how durable and reliable the faith we have received is. So the Lord allows us, allows that faith to be tested. Just as we exercise our bodies in order for them to grow stronger, it is in the exercise of the faith we have been given through the tests and trials of this life that our faith is reinforced and built up. If you turn to the book of Psalms, the testing that God allows is also spoken of as a means of purification, of exposing and removing that which is not of God from our lives so as to bring us closer to the Lord. In the same way, the appropriate pruning of a plant does not hinder or kill that plant, but rather leads to deeper growth, the testing of our faith is intended to deepen and mature our reliance upon the Lord. Jesus' is, stepbrother James, in his letter to the church, writes that our response to this testing of our faith is to be joy. Joy? Why? Because James insists such testing ultimately leads to being able to persevere, to becoming complete in our relationship with God, lacking nothing. Now, temptation arises in the times of our testing because when we are being tested, we are exposed and vulnerable. Temptation is the stirring up of the desire for a way out of being tested, to shortcut or shortchange the examination process. Biblically, a temptation is an enticement to do something wrong, to do something against God's will. And this distinction is why the scriptures emphatically assert the temptations we face are not of the Lord's making. They're not part of the Lord's testing. They are the snare of evil, of the devil, of those forces opposed to God. However, and this is very important, evil, the devil, cannot force or compel us to do what is wrong. All that the forces opposed to the Lord can do is propose, seduce, entice. It is our choice to give in to temptation. Having made the distinction between testing and temptation, let's return once again to our story. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tested to strengthen and reinforce Jesus' faith in the assurance and security of the words just spoken over him from heaven, the authority and power of his identity as a beloved son of God. 
And it is in the exposure and vulnerability of the wilderness as Jesus fasts, depriving himself of food for 40 days, that the devil perceives an advantage and tempts Jesus to bypass the testing he must undergo. And while each temptation Jesus faces is distinctive, together they revolve around a single objective. When the devil suggests not once but twice, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, Jesus' identity is not in question. The devil knows the reality of who Jesus is. When Jesus begins his ministry, demonic forces will have to be silenced by Jesus as they will scream and shout their awareness, he is the son of God. And Jesus knows who he is. Jesus knows who he is. This is not in doubt as his identity has been spoken over him by family members like Mary and Elizabeth, by complete strangers like Simeon and Anna. And most recently, divinely affirmed after his baptism in the Jordan. Really, the if, if you are the son of God we see in our Bibles, is better translated as since. Since you are the son of God. Because what is at stake is not whether Jesus is the son of God. What is at stake is how Jesus will live out his identity as the son of God. Satan's goal in all temptation remains unchanged from what it was in the beginning with Adam, from what it was in the exodus of Israel. The objective of all temptation is to disrupt the relationship between God and his children, to encourage our independence rather than our dependence upon the Lord. In this case, the devil's objective is to sever the relationship between the father and the son. At the heart of all the temptations put before Jesus is the enticement to exercise, to exploit the authority and power of his identity as the son of God for his own benefit. In fact, something we may not notice at first is what Luke shares with us are actually the final three temptations Jesus experiences. I don't mean to get all grammatically nerdy on you here, but Luke uses a present participle to indicate the ongoing action of being tempted. To underscore, Jesus was tempted by the devil for all of the 40 days in the wilderness. All of the 40 days in the wilderness. So what Luke presents here is the grand finale. The final temptations put before Jesus. These are the big three. The big three, the universal temptations put before all humanity in our calling, in our identity, in our dependence as the beloved children of God. The first of the big three relates to Jesus' immediate gratification. Like the original temptation at the tree in the garden, Jesus, who has been fasting and who is hungry, is enticed to eat something. But the temptation is much broader than turning stones to bread. It is the seduction 
of Jesus using his authority and power as the Son of God to satisfy his personal needs and desires. And we all know that temptation, don't we? When we're hungry, not just for food, but to fill the emptiness inside. I mean, comfort or emotional eating is a real thing. But again, this temptation goes beyond the food we eat. It's about the allure of that little something to get us by, to make us feel better. It could be food. It could be alcohol. It might be sex. It could be shopping. Whatever it is, it's the temptation to find our satisfaction, our fulfillment in our appetites, in what we consume. And it's a temptation that Jesus rebukes by doubling down in the midst of his very real physical hunger, by doubling down in his dependence, not upon bread, but upon whatever God provides. Beloved, are we being consumed by our desires? Or are we finding our satisfaction in the Lord? In the second of the big three temptations, the devil shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and offers what we might call a gentleman's agreement. I mean, after all, there's been a long-standing, age-old conflict between the forces of evil and the purposes of God. And this little skirmish here, this little skirmish in the desert, is but another in an ongoing demonic campaign of the attempted undermining and disruption of creation. But give me what I want. Give me what I want, the adversary offers as he waves his flimsy worship contract. Give me what I want. Give the devil his due. And this can all finally be over. I'll return back to you all the authority and glory over the kingdoms of this world that humanity repeatedly has put into my hands, making them my dominion. If we don't recognize this universal temptation, shame on us. Shame on us. Because it's alive and well today, especially in the church. This temptation is the enticement of playing politics rather than walking by faith. It's the allure of avoiding conflict through the art of the deal. It's the ever-present seduction of compromising for the sake of success. It's shaking hands with evil while daring to lift up our hands in praise of the Lord. It's looking the other way or holding our nose when it comes to the character of the authority and power we elect. All for the sake of being in control. All for the sake of getting our agenda passed. It's playing politics, not just on the national or state level, but playing politics in our daily lives. It's working the system. It's cutting corners. It's finding the loopholes. If it's there, why shouldn't I take advantage? Somebody else will. Everybody does it. Nobody got hurt that I noticed. But the second of these of the big three teases out, what the second of the big three teases out is how there's always some good, some good to be gained in the temptations put before us. 
Often when we give in to temptations like this one, you know, the temptation to take a shortcut, the temptation to ignore the fine print, whatever that some good is in a given situation is what we appeal to to make excuses for our actions. I mean, why doesn't Jesus accept the authority and splendor of all the kingdoms of creation? They're rightfully his anyway. Why not? Why not shake hands with the devil and then turn around and take out the adversary right then and there? Because what this temptation exposes, and please hear this, church, what this temptation exposes is the ends do not justify the means. The ends do not justify the means. Jesus refuses to take the easy way out, not just in this moment, but all the way to the cross. What happens here is only the beginning of Jesus' rejection. I want you to be listening for it as we go through the Gospel of Luke. What happens here is only the beginning of Jesus' rejection of how we are tempted to exercise authority. Of how we rationalize our conceptions of power. Again and again. Mark it. Watch it. Look for it. Highlight it. Again and again. Rather than do what is expedient. Rather than do what gets results. Rather than do what wins the crowds over, Jesus will remain steadfast in his devotion, in his uncompromising loyalty to do everything the Lord's way for God's glory alone. The last of the big three takes Jesus out of the wilderness to Jerusalem, the very epitome of Israel's identity. The centerpiece of this royal city of David was, as we all know, the temple, the heart of Israel's worship life. Previously destroyed, a second version of this temple was continuing to be renovated and even expanded by Herod the Great. The devil has Jesus stand on the highest point of this temple and then provokes Jesus to fling himself from its heights. This time around, however, the adversary tries to turn the tables. Following Jesus' lead in the last two temptations, the devil this time uses the Bible as part of his final snare. Quoting Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, the adversary goads Jesus to jump by assuring him of a little divine intervention that God will protect him, not let him perish. This last temptation is a tricky a crucial one. One that despite all the rhetoric and appeal to theatrics, it's a temptation that's inherently religious or spiritual in nature. And that becomes obvious both in the setting of this temptation, the temple, and through the devil's quoting of scripture. In essence, this temptation is to trust, but verify. To trust, but verify. Since you are the beloved son of God, Jesus, God is supposed to protect you, to ensure your well-being. Thus saith the Lord, Jesus. But wouldn't it be ideal to have a little proof of that? Why not? Why not free fall into the arms of the angels to get, you know, just a small practical demonstration of the Lord's reliability? Come on, Jesus, isn't this the biggest struggle that most of God's children have? Believing God is good 
God will protect believing that God will not leave us or forsake us. So why not take a leap of faith right here, right now, and prove to yourself, and at the same time prove to everyone else, God really can be trusted. The temptation to test God. We all come up with our tests for God. I mean, aren't there times in our lives where we try to negotiate, to bargain with the Lord? Just, just, just give me, just show me this sign, God, and then I'll believe. Lord, hey, come on. Lord, just, just grant me, the, I'm not a praying man, but just grant me this one request, and then I promise I'll follow you. I'll follow. You know, Father, if you really loved me, if you really loved me, then you'd answer this prayer. And if you don't answer this prayer, then you are not a good God. We all come with up with our tests for the Lord to pass. We've even created a whole category of Christian thought, apologetics, to prove God is real, to prove God is good. Seriously, step back and realize how much we test God. Ask someone why they believe, why they follow Jesus, and the first answer you'll likely get will not be about the character of Christ. It will not be about Jesus for Jesus' sake. The answer you'll likely get why people believe and follow is going to be about what Jesus has done for them. The cross, the resurrection, a list of prayers that have been answered, a string of miracles they've witnessed. And none of those things are bad. Those are good things. But the question is, do we believe do we believe in and follow God because of who God is? Or do we believe in and follow God because of what God has done for us? Because of what God keeps doing for us? Because you see, when our belief is primarily, when our belief is primarily based on what God has done for us, then we aren't walking by faith. We're walking by verification. Our trust in the Lord only goes as far as what God has done for us lately. And my friends, that's not trust in a relationship. That's testing our relationship. Prove that you love me. Prove that you're good. Prove that I can rely on you. Then I'll believe. Then I'll follow. Then I'll recommit. But in this final, but in this final of the big three, Jesus again doesn't take the bait. Jesus refuses to manage, to try to manage or provoke the Father, even though he is the Son. Jesus rejects the devil's scripturally based promise. Make a note of that, by the way. The devil's scripturally based promise. So don't just believe everybody who throws scripture at you. Because just because it's scripture doesn't mean it's being quoted the right way. Jesus rejects the devil's scripturally based promise, not out of fear of crossing an angry God. Are you kidding? I'm going to tick off my father. Oh my gosh, no. 
Jesus rejects the devil's scripturally based premise, not out of fear of crossing an angry God, but out of respect and complete trust in a good God. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus will never put God to the test. Instead, what will we see? And again, make a note of it. Put it, log it for the file. What we will see, not testing God, again and again we will see Jesus act out of abiding, listening, and just following God's will. Because my friends, if we don't have to prove ourselves to God, then why does God have to prove himself to us? Do you ever ask yourself that question? We stand here by the grace of God, that we don't have to prove anything to God for God to call us his beloved children. We go, oh, amen, hallelujah. But then we go around and go, God, prove it. Do you get the irony of that? Do you get the, the, the I mean, just, I don't know, I mean, I, there's other words that come to mind, but the audacity of that? For Jesus, the Father doesn't need to be tested. The Father needs to be trusted. For when we trust the Father, we receive all the verification we need that God is good. But wait a second. Okay, hold on. <laughs> nice try, Pastor Chris. But didn't you tell us earlier that God tests us? Yes. Following Jesus means we, like Jesus, will be tested. However, as I tried to make clear earlier, we need to rethink our understanding of being tested by God. You see, we see the tests and trials of this life as somehow something like the Lord's pop quiz. We think of it like the tests we took in school. Do you remember the tests you took in school? Where you were on your own at your desk and the teacher was very specific. Hey, if you look at somebody else's work, if you copy somebody else's answers, that's cheating. And so, we take that lens and we perceive each test of our faith as if God gives it to us and we're isolated and alone. God waits for the results and we wait for a grade. But this is not how or why God tests us. Our Heavenly Father tests us not to render a final grade or a final judgment upon us to tell us we pass or we fail. Once again, our Heavenly Father tests us so we can learn and grow into the fullness of our identity as his beloved children. The Lord tests us so that we can see ourselves, so that we can recognize the direction our life is headed and who we are becoming. Now those sorts of tests, it's a given. Those, that kind of learning is rarely pain-free. But... Unlike most of the tests we create, God doesn't intend for us to take his tests alone. In fact, get ready for it, we're expected, we're encouraged to look at Jesus' work, to copy his answers. That's not cheating. That's called discipleship. In fact, we're empowered by the same spirit Jesus was endowed with so that we can do it together. The Lord tests us, not only so that we can see ourselves, but so that we can also see Christ at work in and through us, so that we gain a deeper awareness and appreciation for how God is with us. 
for how God does provide everything we need. And again, we need to be clear. Not all testing automatically leads to temptation. However, it is when our faith, it is when our identity in Christ is being tested that we can find ourselves most exposed and vulnerable to temptation of living independently rather than dependently upon God. And those temptations, just in case you missed it, will always be one of the big three shown here. The enticement to satisfy our needs rather than to rely on God's provision. The seduction of achieving the right thing the wrong way, in the name of God, but miles apart from the character and will of the Lord. The allure of constantly verifying God's goodness before we trust and follow the Lord's direction. When does testing turn into temptation? When does testing turn into temptation? Testing turns into temptation when we want the glory. When we are no longer willing to be followers, but seek to become the lords of our own lives. Testing turns into temptation when we refuse to be saved and instead try to become saviors to save ourselves or worse, save someone else. Testing turns into temptation when we take our eyes off the Lord and convince ourselves it's all up to us. Testing turns into temptation when we alone have to find the answers, when we must overcome evil by ourselves. Testing may lead to temptation. Testing may lead to temptation, beloved, but being tempted does not cut us off or divorce us from God. For every temptation, the Bible promises God provides a way out if we look for it, if we ask for it, and then if we choose to take it. And in the broadest of terms, the way out of temptation is following Jesus. Part of the gospel, the good news, hear it, is that Jesus has been tempted in every way that we are. Just as with every test, with every temptation, we can and should look to Jesus and follow Christ in resisting temptation rather than giving into it. Now that all sounds great, but how exactly do we resist temptation like Jesus? Again, if you missed it, by the grace of God, we have the same resources Jesus had at his disposal. By the grace of God, we have been entrusted with the Word and the Spirit. The Word, if you think about it, and I'm really being a little bit provocative here, but it's true. If you think about it, very little of what Jesus said was actually new. As the Word of God made flesh, much of what Jesus had to say was expressed through the vocabulary, the grammar, the wisdom of the Scriptures. And in this way, Jesus models for us being immersed in the Bible, regularly reading, studying, memorizing, meditating on God's word is both how to correctly discern the nature of the temptations we face and the proper way to respond to those temptations when we come. We all have Bibles, at least in this country, 
in our language. Some of us have more than one in our homes. At a bare minimum, if you're holding onto a phone right now, you have access to one in your hands. But do you actually read it? Do you study it? Have you memorized any part of it? Are you meditating upon it? Or is it like a fortune cookie that you break when all of a sudden you're looking for some advice? When all of a sudden you're looking for an answer? Because, beloved, this ain't fortune cookie Christianity. Likewise, Jesus depended upon the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. The leading and guidance of the Holy Spirit was the basis for Jesus' every insight, every teaching, every miracle, every healing, every action. When we hear Jesus say, do you remember him saying this? When we hear Jesus say that he says or does nothing other than what the Father tells him, the Holy Spirit is the conduit of that inseparable union. My brothers and sisters in Christ, all Christians have the word in their hands and the spirit residing within them. But not every Christian is regularly rooted in the word. Not every Christian allows the spirit not merely to reside, but to reign within them. To have the spirit reigning in us is to consciously place ourselves under the spirit's management and control. It is to abide and keep step with the Spirit's leading throughout each day. I'm hitting this hard, and I've said it before, but I'm going to say it again. Spending time daily in the Bible, daily in prayer in the Spirit, these are not optional. Both are essential practices in following Jesus, in renewing our minds, in recognizing and learning how to do God's will, in dealing effectively with temptation when it comes. Armed with the word and the spirit, I invite you, I challenge you, armed with the word and the spirit, to carefully and honestly look at what tempts you. What voices lead you to stumble and fall? What is distracting you right now? What vices are you getting caught and trapped in? In what circumstances are you finding yourselves where you're being called forth a response other than the one that Jesus is calling you to reflect? Instead of blaming other people, Instead of blaming situations, instead of blaming things, armed with the word and the spirit and accompanied by Jesus, discover what exactly is filling and directing your life and then be set free, strengthened in your identity as a beloved child of God. But you may still be thinking... <laughs> This is great. This is all well and good, but we're not Jesus, Pastor Chris. We're not Jesus. And it's true. Unlike Jesus, we doubtlessly will give in to temptation at times. While we are equipped and therefore ought to seek to avoid succumbing to temptation, we ought to run from it, seek not to succumb to it. The reality is it will happen. It 
has happened. But when it does happen, the gospel, the good news for us, does not change. The grace of God still remains greater than our sin. Something I want us to notice, the most important part of everything I'm saying this morning, so if you've checked out, check back in right now. I know it's a reality. Something I want us to notice. Jesus entered into the wilderness to be tested and ultimately tempted after his affirmation as God's son whom the father was pleased to love. In other words, even Jesus' relationship with the father was established before anything else happened. Jesus' identity was declared apart from anything Jesus had yet done or not done. To be even more explicit, how Jesus responded to the test put before him, whether or not Jesus said yes or no to each temptation, did not determine or change who he is. The beloved Son of God. Jesus could neither earn or lose his relationship with the Father. Jesus could only choose not to live, not to live exclusively out of his relationship with the Father. And beloved, beloved, thanks to the gospel, the grace of God, Jesus who goes before us in all things, thanks to the gospel, the same holds true for each of us. Like Jesus, our identity as beloved children of God is declared first. We are proclaimed sons and daughters of our heavenly Father apart from whatever we do or don't do. That's the reality before any test we endure. That's the reality before any temptation we face. That's the promise before the results are in. Grace. Amazing grace always precedes and follows testing and temptation. If grace is the basis of our relationship, then who we are in Christ and our accessibility and proximity to God does not change. If we can't earn our identity, then we can't lose our identity in Christ. We can only choose not to live into, to live out of that identity. The relationship we have with God through Jesus. And so you see, the tests we endure, even the temptations we face, do not determine whether God knows us or whether our Father claims us. The tests we endure and even the temptations we face determine whether we truly know ourselves. That we are chosen that we belong, that we are accepted, that we are loved, that our Father claims us as his own even when we turn our backs on him. Beloved, in the wilderness of life, we will be tested. We will be tempted. There will always, always be voices that are quick to offer an answer, an idea, away, apart from God. 
But the only voice we need to listen to is the voice of the one who goes before us. The one who was tested and tempted in every way we are. Because in following Jesus, every test and even every temptation becomes an opportunity to rediscover, to live out the unchangeable truth of the gospel, our sacred identity and calling as beloved children of God whom our Father is pleased to love. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.